Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Inspiring you to bring God back into the conversation of the day. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Good morning and welcome back to Hour 2 here of Mornings Without Carmen. I'm Dr. Peter Kapsner filling in for today as Carmen is on vacation today and the rest of this week and enjoying our time at the end of last hour with Pastor Reverend David Nixon from Edinburgh who was talking a little bit about preparing and equipping us within the midst of the secularizations of our time. And Paul, I know we had a few listeners that wanted to get that website one more time. Again, it's happening this Sunday night. You can view it live through YouTube where they're going to actually even do a a, a post-talk question and answer specifically on this topic of transphobia, which I know is in the the minds of many right now. Right. And so if you want to check it out, Okay, their website, you can actually find this at YouTube, but the church's name is Corrubbers. C-U, is that right? C, I think it's C-A-R. Uh, C-A, yes, I made a mistake. Yeah, C-A-R-R-U-B-B-E-R-S. And it's .org, correct, .org right? is their website. All you have to do is look for Corrubbers on YouTube as well, and I'm sure they'll have the stuff it, there afterwards as well, unless you want to be part of that live Q&A. Yeah, and it'll be an so. evening service as well, so it'll be afternoon, our time here in the United right. States. Well, we'll move from the great accent of the Northern Irishman, Reverend David Nixon, and now we're going to invite early into the show, Justin Gibney, who I have to confess, when Justin, you start talking, brother, I, I get very jealous. You cause me to stumble with your deep and perfect low radio voice, and so, you know, it's, it's going to be a struggle for me this morning. Good morning, man. Hey, how's it going? Thanks for having me, as always. Yeah, it's great to have you. I wanted to bring you a little early because there are some news headlines that we cover at this time. And, of course, me being a sports guy, as I am, I enjoy watching a bit of football. And we saw that the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and the Kansas City Chiefs are making their way to the Super Bowl. You know, you work in the AND campaign, Justin, in Atlanta, and, and you're carving out space between both political parties to try to bring the biblical worldview to bear on both. And so we're, we're sort of avoiding the tribalism of republicanism and, and, and maybe being a Democrat. But for you, you're suggesting that sports actually helps encourage some of this tribalism, and that might be good for us. Yeah, I think that people are, are kind of naturally tribal. We all have some tribal instincts, for better or worse. And while taking those tribal instincts into politics is really bad, and I think we've <laughs> seen that in a real way as of late, I think the greatest contribution that sports make in our society is as an outlet for tribalism, an area where tribalism is actually fun and enjoyable. Do you see, Justin, I know you've been an observer of sports over the years, too. It seems, though, people are getting a little bit more attached to personal brands, whether it be an athlete moving from city to city, and they might be more interested in LeBron James, per se, than they are in the L.A. Lakers. So are we losing some of that sense of belonging just from a, from a city-by-city standpoint that gets manifested in our local athletes and our local sports teams as things have become more globalized and, and we have more mobility and technology? Yeah, a lot of it's not as uh, city-based as it once was or regional-based, but but I th- still think there's tribalism surrounding even those individuals. So once they join a team or once you say somebody's the GOAT and someone isn't, there's a tribalism that kind of surrounds that. So I, I still think we get use out of it, 
even if it's not as uh, city based as it once was. But it's, I mean, there's still considerable kind of uh, pride when it comes to your city and all that as well. All right, one more question, man. Uh, is it uh, Patrick Mahomes is going to be the goat, uh, or is Tom Brady going to retain this title here? Uh, you know, maybe over the next ten, fifteen years. Well, let me say this: uh, Brady is is certainly doing a great job. I don't think it'll quite be enough, so I'm gonna go with Mahomes. But uh, for anybody uh, Brady's age to do what he's doing is uh, has to be recognized as uh, as, as the as the goat. But I think we got somebody young coming up that's going to get the best of them in, in, in uh, two weeks. Oh, I love the insight, Justin. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, let's get into biblical peacemaking, where we're going to carve out space in the midst of this tribalism, what it means for believers to be peacemakers in the midst of our fractured country. Some more to come with Justin Gibney up next on Mornings Without Carmen. It is about 10 minutes past the top of the hour. We've already been chatting with Justin Gibney, who is a regular contributor to the morning show. And I'm sure you know his voice if you listen regularly to Mornings with Carmen and Justin changing the topic from sports now to biblical peacemaking. And uh, the headline here that is suggested is that only biblical peacemaking resolves racial and political injustice. And I would love some of your comments on this, because the question that I often have is to what degree do we as believers need to be involved within the political platforms of the day, whether they be Republican or Democrat, that are purporting to fight injustice of various kinds? And to what degree do we have to sort of be off the grid and, and carving out our own space and our own way forward as sort of option C? How do you see this conversation within peacemaking and what does biblical peacemaking mean? Yeah, well, we'll start with the first part of your question. Uh, I think that politics gives Christians a robust opportunity to defend the human dignity of their neighbors and also to promote their human flourishing. And so I think when we miss those opportunities, when we don't fight for justice, when God has put certain issues in our sphere of influence, in many instances, I think that is is poor stewardship. And so I think we do need to take that as a responsibility as citizens uh, of, 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 of this country, but more importantly, citizens of the kingdom to try to bring about restoration, sometimes through uh, uh, civic engagement. Now, that's not the only way to do it, but I think that's a, a a strong way to do it. And one way to think about how we should go about this is through being peacemakers, not ke- peacekeepers, but peacemakers. And we know that in the Bible, uh, peace is shalom, uh, which is not the absence of conflict. It's really the presence of justice. It's about right action and right belief, also restoration and right relationship. So as we go about engaging civically, I think it you know, thinking about being peacemakers means that we speak a certain way, that we address our opponents a certain way. It does not mean that we're not determined or passionate or sometimes shrewd when it comes to uh, promoting justice and righteousness, but we will go about it a certain way and we won't kind of sink to some of the lows that we see happening in the public square today. Yeah, let's talk about that certain way that you just referenced. One of the things that strikes me, and maybe correct me if I'm wrong or barking up the wrong tree here, but there's this within politics it's so often who has what power and and it's gaining power to then assert whatever it is that you believe your will should be into the situation but as believers it seems to me that there's so much about the idea of we let our power go that it, it's it's service it is other centeredness it's giving up one's own sense of right entitlement and privilege for the sake and the wholeness or the shalom as you've described as another so are we talking about competing philosophies that manage uh, that that manifest themselves in competing ways of approaching peacemaking 
Yeah, I think I think the world and Christians uh, should see at least should see power differently. Now, we know that power isn't always bad. Influence isn't always bad, but it isn't the ultimate goal. And too often what happens in our politics is that we're just seeking an exchange of power. We're seeking to maintain the power that we have and, and take as much away from our opponents as we can. Where what I think you're getting at, and I think you're correct, is we need to use our power and use our influence to help others. I've talked a lot about Christians not just being about uh, Christian self-interest. I think our politics for too long has been about our own self-interest rather than making sure that we're taking care of others and our neighbors. Now, we can consider our interests, but if we look at uh, what Jesus said, if we look at the Sermon on the Mount and so many of his teachings, it's hard to argue that our main concern uh, should be our own power and our own self-interest. Uh, I believe that on the day that we have to answer uh, to God, uh, we're not going to, you won't want to defend yourself by saying, I did as much as I could for myself, but I did as much as I could for my neighbor. Yeah, I think you're referencing, Justin, this idea of interest and not just your own, but the that of others, Philippians 2 says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. In humility, value others above yourselves, looking out not for your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. And this is one way that really does end up, uh, it, it's a bit contagious when somebody actually decides to break the difficult ground of saying, hey, look, I'm going to look for your interest ahead of my own. It really does set a different pathway that other people start picking up that mantle as well. But it does take some first steppers in this to to carve out a different space because there is such a self-interest, self-absorbed kind of culture that can reign otherwise. Yeah, again, there's no Christian, there's no faithful Christian life without courage. And so there has to be people who are courageous enough to say we're going to do this a different way uh, and that I'm not going to feed into the fear because I think that's what happens, especially in politics. Now, there are threats to Christian society, to things that are going on. But if we feed into that fear and let that fear control us, we won't let go of power. We're always feel so embattled that we got to hold on and protect ourselves. And that's just not a Christian way, even in the midst of threats. That's not a Christian way uh, to go about life there. We know we, we have to have faith. We have to believe that that God is with us. And so we can't allow our fear to uh, force us to disrespect our neighbor or to add to kind of the uh, some of the illness that's in society. And too often that's what happens with Christians in politics. Mm -hmm. One more question on this, Justin. You brought up the idea of flourishing. And I know that's sort of been a buzzword in the last maybe five to seven years within evangelical Christianity in particular. But as we're talking about flourishing, I would love your perspective on what it means to be flourishing. But, but I think more importantly, I think for most people, they think they have to do what it takes to maintain their own sense of flourishing. They need to grab after what they can to flourish. But it seems like in the Christian worldview, we sort of do this very vulnerable and difficult thing where we put our flourishing in the hands of another person. And if you're not governed by love, that becomes an impossible task. Yeah. I mean, look, we, we are all part of uh, a representative democracy. We're part of, of something that says, look, we have a certain level of control on what happens to our neighbors. And we need to exercise that. We need to make sure that, and let, let's apply it to some real things. Let's apply it to education. We shouldn't want anyone of our neighbors to be getting an education that's not going to give them the opportunity to flourish later on in life when it comes to economics. We we should only let our neighbors go so low and make sure that we're helping out and make, uh, make sure that children are eating and things of that nature. So there's many opportunities that we have on a daily basis. Again, politics is only one way to go about this. It's not the only way, but it gives us a big... A, a, a very 
a significant opportunity to care about other people. And we have to take that opportunity, not just as individuals, but as the church collectively. That's great stuff, Justin. I appreciate it. I think it's an admonition for all of us to think about what can we do, just simple steps today to look towards the flourishing or the wholeness, the, the shalom to another person. They, these can just be simple things that we do. But again, to the extent that we manifest that other centeredness in our lives, it really does begin to shine that light. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll change topics a little bit. Curious to get your thoughts on what it means that everything is broken for some people within our healthcare system in particular, as well as what it means to be whole life, pro-life. So more to come. Stay with us with Justin Gibney next. Welcome back to the show. I'm Peter Kapsner filling in for this week for Carmen LaBerge, who has a well-deserved vacation for this week. We're chatting with Justin Gibney from the AND Campaign, a regular contributor to the program. And Justin, I know coming up here on Thursday evening, January 28th, 7 o'clock Eastern Time, 6 o'clock Central Time, that you are hosting this panel discussion called Controversial Conversations. And specifically, the topic for this one is going to be what it means to be whole life pro-life. And Christians obviously tend to think of the pro-life conversation with through the lens of abortion and what our policies should be about that. But what does it mean, just sort of big picture, uh, to be whole life, pro-life? It means that we won't just fo- focus on birth, and, and that's so important, too. So I, I don't want to skip over, you know, those uh, pro-life folks who, who focus mostly on birth because that is uh, really important, but that we'll think about what happens after birth, and we'll understand how women are going through crisis pregnancies and how we can help them just beyond that that moment. And so that's what we're saying. How do we extend our understanding of pro-life to go past just birth and through throughout life in general? And to that degree, that does take a different mindset, right? It, it, clearly, we have a moral code that we we see this is important by ways in which to live for human flourishing. But that moral code does need to extend to just simply how we view one another. And so it's not just the conversation about abortion, but anytime we see people broken, hurting, in need, suffering at any level, to be whole life involves interceding in those places. And again, not abortion conversation is so important, but we've been talking in my ethics class here at the University of Northwestern St. Paul about a broad pro-life perspective that does include interceding within the midst of any kind of brokenness that we see. Yeah, it's about human dignity uh, throughout life. Uh, it's about understanding that people have a certain worth at every part of it within every part of their lives, uh, whether they're they're elderly, whether they're you know uh, adolescents or whatever. That there's a certain dignity there, and as Christians, we need to recognize that, but not only recognize it, protect it. Justin, I remember a few years ago that I was somewhat embarrassed by my sort of lack of compassion with which I saw the world and was maybe willing to give and serve, you know, go be a part of an organization, give some money here and there. But the idea of being broken by another person's suffering and thus moving from that place, as we land the plane from some of these concepts, do you have just sort of suggestions for people that say, you know, maybe I don't see the world and see the suffering around me through the lens of what of how God might see it, which is is enough to move the heart of God, to move towards people, to bring wholeness, whether it's in the spiritual realm and the physical realm. Uh, how does a person move from a place of, gosh, I'm just trying to survive my day, or maybe I am a little bit more self-absorbed than I would like? How do you become this sort of other-centered person? Well, first is reading the Bible and prayer. I mean, that's always a big part of it. But something else that can be helpful is just building relationships outside of your mm-hmm. normal circle getting to know people in different areas, not to tell them what to do, not to uh, control the situation, but just to listen and understand uh, the plight of others. And that takes time. 
but I think if we make that effort, uh, that we'll be a lot more empathetic and we'll we'll be able to you know put ourselves in other people's shoes and see different perspectives that may have been blind spots before. And in terms of the demographic um, sort of fractures that we might have and geographic fractures that we have, I think about it, Justin, that I live in a suburb that's probably about 35, 40 minutes west of the downtown Twin Cities area here in Minneapolis-St. Paul, sort of on the edge of rural farmland country. And most of the people that I'm walking around are sort of small community in our neighborhoods with are quite a bit like me. And so I'm, I'm relatively insulated from whether it's to my further west, some farmers that may be in deep need or coming into the city, some people living a different kind of life than maybe I'm experiencing. So what do we do when we're geographically dispersed in this way and, and people can move 35, 40, 45 minutes by, by vehicle wherever they want to go? We've seen sort of this flight from the cities. How are you processing this if we do want to get in relationship with other people that are different than us, uh, whether it's by color of skin, whether it's by demographic, by income level, anything along these lines? Yeah, I think we have to go. We have to be very deliberate and go out our, out of our way to do it. And, and and this is one area where social media and technology helps us out. There are ways through social media that we can fellowship with others that we normally wouldn't uh, and that we can seek out and, and take the time to go to those different spaces, even if though we can't be there every day to go there, build relationships. And then may, maybe we carry on those relationships in more of a, a virtual manner and, and meet up when we can. But it's all about the will to do it, right? Mm-hmm. It's about wanting to build those relationships. And, and I truly believe that if we want to do it, if we're going to be deliberate about it, we'll find ways to, to make it happen. Is it fair to say that somebody could pray a prayer along the lines of, Lord, disrupt my existing life so that I can enter into the ways of your kingdom in this way? That seems like a really uh, vulnerable and scary prayer to, to enter into, Justin. Yeah, I'd, I'd say so. But I think it's one that's necessary because, you know, we're all limited in our perspective. We, we None of us. And that's why it's so beautiful that we have so much diversity within the church. We all have our limitations and it's through being around one another and fellowshipping like it talks about in Ephesians 4 that we grow together and mature together. Mm. And Justin, clearly people are having different experiences. We walk up this earth. And so enable, to, to be with other people helps shift that perspective. One of the ways in which we see people experiencing differences is within our healthcare system as well. And uh, there's this haunting quote from an article that you and I were sharing about everything is broken. So tell us a little bit about what's happening within this context as well in different people's experiences. Yeah, so it was a great article by Atlanta Newhouse uh, in Tablet Magazine that was talking that was called "Everything Is Broken," and yeah. it talks about how things have become flat. That there's kind of this forced flatness, and and you can see it in the in the medical uh, side of things where efficiency and accessibility have overcome other values, uh, and and it has actually hurt the the. Um, uh, the 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 quality of service that we get from our medical care system. You, if, if everything's about efficiency, then it might not be as you know as, as we might not be getting the quality that we need. And and so we talk about how in some hospitals or, or some visits were rushed through in ten minutes when they really probably should be seeing us for an hour. And we really need to question the value of putting efficiency at the top. Now, we don't think efficiency is bad, but should it be our number one priority? You also see that in economics, uh, where efficiency and getting the most out of something has caused us to take a lot of jobs overseas and leave a lot of people out in our society uh, in, in, a, in a tough way and in tough positions. And so I think we need to question all of that. And really, I think there's time for a, a paradigm shift where we put the va- you know the value back on things like community, family values and ideological diversity rather than the speed and universal accessibility, convenience and conformity that we see so much and valued so highly in our society today. 
Justin, so incredibly helpful. I think you talk about the dehumanizing impact of seeing one another through sort of the economic lens of efficiency. I even think about churches when we refer to the beautiful image-bearing people of God as giving units, right? People, how much will they give to sustain the budget of the church? We're already sort of dehumanizing the situation and missing all that. And in all of these different spheres, we really need to do the work to see one another through the Imago Dei, the image of God lens. That's exactly right. Uh, We have to see the people, uh, not just what the people provide or uh, as statistics, but see their hearts and and want to get to know them and value them in a way that efficiency might not allow us to do in every instance. Great stuff as always, Justin. I know you've got this panel discussion coming up again in the 28th Controversial Conversations. Where can people go if they want to access and listen in? They can go out to the Ann Campaign's Facebook page, uh, and there'll be a Zoom link there where you can enjoy that conversation happening on Thursday at 7 p.m. Well, thanks for the wisdom as always. I'm looking forward to checking in in about 20 years to see if your prediction of Patrick Mahomes becoming the greatest of all time comes true. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> Have a great rest of the day, Justin. All right, take care. Take a short break here for some Breakpoint and bottom of the hour news, and we'll uh, have a book giveaway. So pay attention to what's coming up here next and the last segment of Mornings Without Carmen. Well, Paul, I think it's time to queue up the text line because we have a book giveaway coming up here with our next guest, uh, that being prominent pastor and New York Times bestselling author Mark Batterson with his book, win the day. We're going to talk a little bit about the failure of New Year's resolutions. So we are 26 days into this new year, mm-hmm. Paul. And did you make some resolutions this year? And how I, are they I going? I made a resolution a long time ago to not do any resolutions. Already I failed. You already failed. Well, you've got another five days maybe to succeed somehow to, to chart out a new path. But 26 days of I failure, can, dude. you can still turn it around it's here, Paul. A- Contradictory. It, st- oh, never mind. It is. Well, when does the text line open? You should give our listeners well, a little they, sense of what to do here yeah, to get ready okay. for this book. If they want to win a copy of the book, we're doing a drawing. Just text the word book, just B O O K. Nothing else. Don't put emojis. Don't put it. <laughs> just the word book to 877 933 2484. You'll get a kickback message with a link. Click on the link, fill out the uh, form, and you're in the drawing. You do understand that as soon as you say don't do something, I would invite our listeners to go ahead and text in any emoji that they would like at this point this morning. <sighs> yes, but they won't get the kickback message for the link. I'm just, just saying. Okay, so it's a text book into 877-933-2484. Up next, Mark Batterson. This is Max Lucado. One stumble does not define or break a person. Though you failed, God's love does not. Face your failures with faith in God's goodness. He tells you what he told Joshua. Arise, go, you and all this people, to the land which I am giving. Joshua chapter 1 and verse 2. There is no condition in that covenant. God's promised land offer does not depend on your perfection. It depends on His. In God's hands, no defeat is a crushing defeat. The steps of good men are directed by the Lord. He delights in each step that they take. If they fall, it isn't fatal, for the Lord holds them with His hand. Psalm 37, 23, and 24. Miss this truth and miss your new beginning. You must believe that God's grace is greater than your failures. This is Max Locato. Well, the text line is indeed open. You can text book, B-O-O-K, nothing else. I would still suggest a couple of emojis here and there just to delight Paul Burrow's heart here in studio. But text book. 
to 877-933-2484, and we will send you a copy of Win the Day. Don't by, be put in a drawing for the copy. Oh, I'm sorry, drawing for the copy. Yes. Thank you for uh, the book Win the Day by Mark Batterson, Seven Daily Habits to Help You Stress Less and Accomplish More. And we will bring Mark into the show right now. Good morning, Mark. Hey, good morning. Good to be with you guys. It's great to have you here. And I understand that you are in the D.C. area and you're getting a little bit of ice and snow from what I hear. We, we are. And, and unlike uh, unlike the Midwest, we we shut down with the chance of snow. <laughs> Just even <laughs> even the hint of it. Right. Because you were born in the if I understand correctly, in the Minneapolis, St. Paul area. So you are not unfamiliar with snow. Uh, I am not unfamiliar. I have uh, shoveled many a shovel full of snow. I love it. Well, great to have you on the program here. You've uh, released this book called Win the Day. And uh, I'll tell you what, if anything characterizes our life these days, it seems that we probably all share a bit in stress. And uh, what do we do? Just what, you, you have some steps in this book. You have some great insight about how to walk out of a stressful life and into just so more of, a, I, I guess, a more peaceful kind of life. But what prompted writing this book to start out with? Well, I, I think we have really got to live one day at a time. And that's not just a platitude. I think it's a thread that is woven throughout uh, Scripture. You know, give us this day our daily bread. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Take up your cross daily. His mercies are new every morning. Uh, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Don't worry about tomorrow. I, I could keep going, mm. but that's the tip of the iceberg that uh, it's this idea of living in daytight compartments, which is a lot easier said than done. I was going to say, why is that so hard, Mark? Because I know all those platitudes you describe. I've seen them. I, I've claimed those verses, I'm sure, at different times in my life. And yet, if anything could characterize that many days of my life, it's, oh, no, tomorrow's coming. What's going to happen? Why, why is it so difficult to live in the peace and in the situation of the day? Well, I mean, I want to be careful here because memory is a tremendous gift from God mm -hmm. and imagination is a tremendous gift from God. And so, uh, so grateful for those capacities. I think those are dimensions of the image of God. And yet the only moment that we can live in is right now. The theologian Paul Tillich called God the eternal now. Mm. Yesterday is history. Tomorrow is mystery. And you have to really learn to live each day like it's the first day and last day of your life. One of the habits that you recommend as part of this book, too, you titled Flip the Script. And so when you talk about memory, Mark, I'm guessing that some of what happens is that when we do have difficult things that have happened in our lives, whether it's maybe the loss of a loved one or a relationship breaking up or a job didn't work out for whatever reason, or any number of things that can happen in our lives, those are not easy things to stop remembering or to stop sort of then uh, impact our daily life. I think about if I, if I put my hand on a hot stove, for example, by accident and get burned, every time I walk past that stove for a very long time, I'm associating stove not with cooking things anymore, not with some sort of healthy reality in my life. It's something, boy, I'm going to get burned again. Is this part of what happens is that we bring our past into our present? Absolutely. That's a fantastic example. And if you want to change your life, you you need to change your story. You know, in cybernetic theory, there are two kinds of change. First order change is behavioral. It's doing something more or less, which works on some level. But second order change is conceptual. It's changing the story that you're telling yourself. And so in a sense, all of us are our own historians. And so my question would be, do you really trust 
the seven-year-old that that made the memory that you are now trying to look back on? Or do you trust uh, the teenager's recollection of what happened uh, in high school? I think God has given us the ability to go back and, in a sense, post-imagine or post-edit. And, uh, you, you know, this is not it's not fake news. It's about looking at the past through the filter of God's story, what he's done in your life, looking at the past from the from the far side of the cross and the empty tomb. And that's something that takes a lot of work. But I think it's critical if we're going to be fully present in the present. Yeah, I think it's such great advice, Mark. I think back to sometimes in high school where in a shocking development, I wasn't as popular as I wanted to be <laughs> in, in high school. <laughs> but that did really then drive quite a bit of things. And it sort of subtly speaking, maybe things I wasn't aware of in my 20s about why I did what I did and, and wanting to be successful or whatever it might be. You can be driven by some things like that, that to take some time to reflect backwards. You're not talk, uh, talking about denying the things that have happened in our past, but you're talking about um, imagining some realities in the midst of them that probably were present as well, like the whole thing wasn't terrible, or just seeing the fullness of the story in the past as you as you gain some perspective moving forward. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you may not be responsible for some things that happen. Listen, bad things happen to good people, but you are response-able. There's a little hyphen in there. You have the ability to choose your response. And at the end of the day, our explanations are actually more important than our experiences. And I, I think Josh uh, Joseph is a great example of that, Genesis 50, 20. You intended to harm me, hmm. he says to his brothers, but God intended it for good. And so part of flipping the script is allowing uh, God to really write that story in us and through us. And he is the author, the author and finisher of our faith. And so we've got to learn to give him complete editorial control. And when we do that, I really believe that God starts writing his story in us and through us. I'm chatting with uh, Mark Patter Batterson this morning on Win the Day, and we do have some books that we can give away. You can be entered into a drawing if you want to text into our studio the word book at 877-933-2484. Mark, one more thing from your book here. You have uh, this little phrase called kiss the wave. And I'm really curious what you mean by this, because anytime I think of a wave, I think that I've swallowed the wave. I think about being swimming in the ocean and, and getting overwhelmed by the waves. What are we talking about here? Yeah, I've, I've, I have uh, swallowed my own fair share of uh, salt water. <laughs> but uh, it's, it is a, an allusion to something Charles Spurgeon said. He said, I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. And so it's critical that we understand that the obstacle is not the enemy. The obstacle is the way. And I, I think it begins with a question. What have you come to teach me? So whenever we find ourselves in difficult circumstances, we've got to learn the lesson, cultivate the character, curate the change. Otherwise, we find ourselves right back in those same situations. And so we've got to uh, kiss the wave that throws us against the rock of ages. No, such great advice, Mark. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, I want to get into a couple of more tips that you have specifically around cut the rope and seed the clouds in terms of just starting to chart a different way forward in our life, releasing some of the stress that we have, living in a different kind of way of life where we really manifest the peace that we claim that we have as we follow Jesus in this world. So more to come with Mark Batterson next on Mornings Without Carmen.
<laughs> having a delightful conversation with uh, author and pastor Mark Batterson on his book, Win the Day. And Mark, you changed my thinking during the break. We've talked a little bit of football these last couple of days. Obviously, I'm a diehard and ever-miserable Vikings fan here in, in the north of, of Minnesota. You were in Green Bay, and uh, we, we were going to have a pretty significantly antagonistic conversation during the break, but you changed my thinking about the fact that you managed to root for the Packers, even though you've actually done three chapels for the Minnesota Vikings this year. So ha- help me change my thinking, Mark. This is part of what this book is about. Oh man, you you have just brought us into difficult territory. But uh, <laughs> you can have more. You can have more than one child and love them both, guys. Uh-huh. And so, uh, I m- one of my first memories is old Metropolitan Stadium, and uh, I'm a diehard Vikings fan. But I do have a little bit of cheese in my blood, and people have a hard time understanding that. But uh, I have a, I have three children, and I love them all. So there you go. <laughs> See how he did that, Paul? He got right behind our defenses by referencing with nostalgia the, the Metropolitan Stadium. And then and now I'm going to believe that the Packers actually are a good football team. Wait, wait, wait. wait. Three children? Yes. Uh, what's the third child? Vikings, Packers? Well, no, 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 no. Just three actual oh, children. Three actual oh, children. <laughs> the children that actually matter. Football does not matter. Well, thanks for helping us expand our thinking a little bit here, Mark. I know as we're talking about your book and what it means to move from a life of stress to maybe a life of peace, a life of just a lack of worry and, and how we can redo our lives in some ways just day to day like this. You have a pretty interesting phrase here called cut the rope. And I think a lot of us, because we live in fear, we want to play things safe and not take risks. But you're advising exactly the opposite here. Yeah. Faith is taking the first step before God reveals the second step. And so often we want God to go first because then it doesn't require uh, any any faith on our part. But uh, I have learned you've got to take those little steps of faith and God has a way of honoring them. And so cut the rope is a fun allusion to uh, actually the inventor of the elevator safety break who did quite the demonstration, 1853 World's Fair. And uh, he had an axeman cut a rope as he stood on an elevator high above that exhibition hall. And the safety break worked. And the next thing you know, there are hundreds of skyscrapers in New York City. Why? Because of elevators, because of the elevator break. And all of that started with a moment when he said, cut the rope. And so I think there are moments in our lives where, uh, honestly, the greatest risk is taking no risk at all. That's the essence of faith. Mark, I, I just think that's an incredible invitation, and, and it calls me to mind the biblical story of when the Israelites were standing on the banks of the Jordan River in the book of Joshua, ready to enter into the promised land, and God said, you have to put your foot in the waters, and then the waters will part. And if we were back in that scene, Mark, we would see that, that those were rushing waters. It was sort of stepping into this chasm, and it really was a move of faith, like the very way to enter into God's promised way of life, the promised land was to put your foot fully into those waters and you had to trust that they would part as you fully committed. And that's part of what we're talking about here, right? Is taking that risk of entering into the waters. This even, I'm guessing, has to do with your Ebenezer's coffee house that you have in D.C., where they built these Ebenezer stones remembering God's faithfulness in the past. It helps us take risks in the future. Yeah, absolutely. You've got to get your feet wet and uh, you've got to wade into the waters. And so, it's not doing something big. It's those little steps of faith. And so Ebenezer's Coffee House, which has been voted number one coffee house in D.C., we're about <laughs> five blocks from the Capitol. 
Uh, by the way, last week we served hundreds and hundreds of National Guard because of a little event called the inauguration Incredible. here in D.C. But uh, it was once a crack house, and we had what I would call a God idea. I'd rather have one God idea than a thousand good mm. ideas. And we turned that crack house into a coffee house. Uh, in, in a sense, a postmodern well, a place where church and community can cross paths. And every penny of profit we give to kingdom causes. And so God has blessed it. And, and I'll add one more thing, if that's okay. Great, yeah. And, Having an office right above that coffee house, uh, the Holy Spirit plus caffeine equals awesome. <laughs> I, can't, I can't disagree. I can't say that I can find that in the book of Ephesians, Mark, but that seems to be one of those those truths of life that just simply is self-evident, right? Yes, thank you. I love it. <laughs> We've got another, and again, if you're listening uh, this morning, you can text into the studio the word book at 877-933-2484. You will be entered into a giveaway where we're going to give away some of Mark's book here called Win the Day. And one that really intrigued me as well here, Mark, maybe the last one we can cover this morning, is this idea of see the clouds. And it's so today so S-O-W, so today what you want to see tomorrow. And I think about that, that's true in a number of things. I know as my wife Hallie and I have tried to parent our kids, however much we have succeeded and failed and, and helped shepherd them along the way, that one of the mindsets that we wanted to have is who, who would we like to see them be at the age of 18, 19, 20, 21, knowing only a certain part of that is within the control of the parents. But you're parenting at the ages of three, four, five, six, both for survival purposes, but also to think about, so what do I want to do in the future and what do I want to see? But this is true in any sphere of life, right? It is. And I may just share this since uh, you bring up children. Right. You know, one of, one of my earliest memories, my grandfather was the first municipal judge of Fridley, Minnesota. His name wow. was Elmer Johnson. He taught at Northwestern when Billy Graham was the president in 1951. And, you know, some of my earliest memories are him praying for me. He was hard of hearing. So he would take off his hearing aid and he would pray and he couldn't hear himself, but everybody else in the house could hear him. Hmm. And, uh, he died when I was six years old, but his prayers did not. Prayer does not have an expiration date. It's how we see the clouds. And there have been moments in my life, even now, where I felt like the Holy Spirit has said in that still small voice, the prayers of your grandfather are being answered in your life right mm. now. Can I just remind us today that we harvest fields we did not plant. We drink from wells we did not dig. We live in houses we did not build. What I'm getting at is someone seeded the clouds many, many years ago, parents, grandparents, you are the answer to someone's prayer. And I think prayer turns parents into prophets who shape the destiny of their kids by the prayers that they pray. And so I hope that's an encouragement today. No, such an encouragement, Mark. I mean, I think it invites us to think generationally in terms of the impact of the things that we do in the midst of a spirit of the age where it's about what you can sort of get out of this life and it is about you succeeding and flourishing in this life. That's a very different invitation to see the clouds and to think about how maybe your mundane daily habits that you're entering into, that you want to be consistent with the kingdom, that that might play itself out generations to come. And when we have the perspective. Boy, quite the invitation. Well, thanks for joining us so much. Such great insight. Again, the book is Win the Day. The text line is still open. You can text book to 877-933-2484. Mark, enjoy the snow and ice of D.C. today. We'll catch up again soon. Absolutely. Thanks so much. God bless. Yeah, great to have you. We'll take a short break and wrap up our show here for the 26th of January on morning, Mornings Without Carmen. Paul, 
I could have, I could have chatted with Mark for quite some time. He just, you know, he these are practical tips, and sometimes practical tips are kind of meh, meh. They don't really, you know, help that much at the end of the day. But he had substance, and he had theological underpinnings, and he yeah. had personal experience in life. And that idea at the end, the idea that what we sow in the present, mm-hmm. that maybe we're not going to realize those things in our lives, but the idea of the prayers of his grandfather that still have seeded themselves now in right. his life, maybe 40, 50 years later, to be thinking generationally, that is part of a kingdom perspective. And it, just, it that takes a lot of faith, trusting God is sovereign and he can do these things even if you don't see it in your own lifetime. Yeah, it, and it really calls to mind that passage that if you want to try to find your life and gain your life on your own, you're going to lose it. But if you want to lose your life for my sake, you will certainly find it. And so to give up whatever we believe, our, our entitlements in this life, whatever we believe, uh, we should have in this life to to pursue human flourishing on our own and try to grasp after it. That almost always ends poorly. But when we give it all up and turn towards others, as Justin Gibney said, as Mark Batterson says, we begin to seed the kingdom into the future. So great show today. We look forward to catching you tomorrow on Mornings Without Carmen. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.